2: Lady Bosses, and then an iHeartRadio podcast.
0: Welcome to Lady Bosses. We got Jesse Draper. I'm Ben Higgins. This is episode four of Lady Bosses. Jesse, this week, something popped up. What popped up? I have a management team. Obviously, I've I've made an income on social media. A lot of people coming off reality television do. Uh, It's been a focus now for a while where uh, companies are investing into people like myself or you know, influencers to promote their products. This week, I was sitting at dinner with a friend who was also on the same show as me. I'm not going to call him out because he does make a living doing this as well. And uh, he signed a massive contract with a company, with a brand. It was a great campaign. But this week, he got news that he didn't sell one single product from his social media. For me, that's concerning, obviously. I mean, it's how I make an income outside of these shows. Jesse, I want to hear from you. What is the future of advertising? And will social media be – will it exist? Have we figured it out? Would you want you one of your brands to promote through influencers like myself? Be careful with that.
2: Ben, is, <laughs> ben <laughs> it's such a good question, actually. Um you know, this is something that we as a venture capital fund are super focused on. Um, you know, traditional advertising hasn't been working for a really long time. And so we've been digging into influencer marketing and what works and what doesn't. We have companies that know what works. We have companies that have, we have like Carbon 38. They were fantastic and grew to this enormous size because they didn't use, um, you know, influencers with million plus followers, they used organic, authentic influencers to their brand. And what I mean by that would be like 10, you know, someone with 10,000 followers who's a yoga teacher Um, and they would send them product and they would wear it. And what they've realized is these micro influencers, as we call them, are performing much better than some of the people with 14 million followers. And so what it's all about is knowing your audience and your demographic and how much they would spend and who they are. Are they moms? Are they women between 25 and 35? Um, The more you know about your audience and what their general income is and how much they'll spend in one purchase, the better, I think, for you as an influencer. And then also, the brands need to see that you're performing, obviously. We have one company called Inked Brands that actually scrapes data and has learned very similarly to your friend that it doesn't matter how many followers you have, sometimes someone with 700,000 followers can sell millions of dollars worth of product because it's a very high-end audience versus the person with 4 million subscribers on YouTube who couldn't send, you know, sell $10,000 worth of product. And we actually saw an interesting company the other day um, that is helping scrape Instagram data um, to figure out how many fake followers you have, because that's a whole thing. And some people have quite a few fake followers.
0: Yeah, I, but the whole world is, you know, and that is interesting because I know... From my personal experience, there's influencers out there who can purchase followers. So, like you said, you have fake followers. So, somewhere, somebody that you know maybe has a hundred thousand followers on Instagram gets you know hundred and twenty thousand likes. You know something weird's happening. You can purchase these fake followers. So, th- th- we haven't quite figured it out, Jesse. I think what you're saying, and tell me if I'm completely wrong is that maybe the face-to-face is the, still the best way to market. And so if you have these yoga teachers who are wearing the brands and who are promoting the brands, and they sell it to the 50 people that come through each class that they're teaching, or they tell you know if there's a, a 35% uh, sales rate on each class, those are the people who are making the biggest impact. And the people that have you know, 2 million, 3 million followers who aren't getting face-to-face with people, that people aren't trusting it?
2: Yeah, it's about real people. And it's not even necessarily about the yoga teachers being in person, but it's about the fact that they are regularly interacting with yogis and have that organic following. And so if you follow one yoga teacher, uh, you might follow another. And then you realize, I love my yoga teacher. I love what they're wearing. I want to, you know, sort of be Zen like them and I'll buy it. And, you know, then they can post carbon 38 and sell it through their site. And so that has uh, converted a lot more than traditional advertising these days. It's a really well. And then you brought up these fake followers and yeah, you can purchase them. um, And they are these bots. They there's businesses now around creating all of these fake bots and they try to make them even look real uh, by having them like, you know, Kylie Jenner's um, you know, pay Instagram page a whole bunch and write little comments. And uh, now there's things that people look for. And so it's not, you know, you don't want fake people following you. I think it's all about real people. I mean, you know all about this.
0: Yeah, so Generous this year grew uh, tremendously based on one idea. And I think this is the best thing that we chose to do this year is we built an ambassador program this ambassador program reached out to anybody that wanted to we we sent out on social media and we sent out emails to current customers and we said do you want to uh, be an ambassador for generous because you've seen the impact you've tried the coffee you've wore the t-shirts whatever that is you believe in the mission do you want to help us promote it and if so you get you know free bag of coffee a free t-shirt you know x amount percent off and we'll give you first dibs on any trip we take so we just kind of implemented these benefits for anybody that was a real person who had already invested into the brand. And it helped us grow tremendously. We have these people with a hundred followers talking about generous. Well, if we get 50 more people to buy a bag of coffee, that's a massive, a massive deal to generous, especially as a brand that's growing. And so I believe, I believe that the ambassador programs, I believe that these grassroots efforts, these, you know, this real people promoting real things that they really believe in is the future. To marketing.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think people are trying to figure it out. And the funny thing about influencer marketing is you're there's more and more popping up, more of these influencers popping up left and right. And, you know, who will win and what will be like the ultimate influencer category. And um, you know, my uh, my cousin, what's your cousin's wife? Like what is that? She's my cousin's wife now. So yeah, that my works for right now. Cousin's wife. Okay. Anyway, she's a big influencer in fashion, and um, she it blows my mind. She has like millions of followers, and she just posts um, different fashion brands all the time. She's not really exclusive to anyone, and she makes a really really nice living doing that. And it. It's just, you know, that's what she does on a regular basis. I wonder if that gets exhausting. You like, what do you think? Does it get exhausting when you're just constantly like, does it, you know, you feel like you are doing regular things all the time and you have to take a picture of it?
0: Well, what I do know is that it gets exhausting if you're not promoting what you believe in. Jesse, before we change gears here and we move in to our very first guest, uh, who is the CEO of Baked by Melissa, a brand that definitely grew from grassroots efforts, I want to ask you. Because it does get exhausting for people like me or in this new world of social media where marketing and ads and brands come across at all the time. How can somebody like me continue to use my platform to make the biggest impact for these brands and so that I can still make that living? Because you know what? It is a burden that I carry and I don't want that to go away. How can myself as an influencer be the biggest benefit to these brands that reach out to me?
2: I think just knowing your audience and what works and what you can sell. So, you know, I would guess your audience is very female because you're single and you were on The Bachelor and I know The Bachelor audience is very female. And so if you learn, you know, what those females buy and what those females like to do, um, those are the brands you should probably work with that you'll have the most Success with, but then you know I know that your fans and followers and friends are all behind you too, doing generous coffee and want to buy your product because they believe in you. But I think it's just about being authentic to who you are, and um, and then also kind of combining it with the data behind your following.
0: Speaking of somebody that built a brand on themselves, literally, you're talking about somebody being themselves, being you. Melissa Ben-Ashai has built a brand, Baked by Melissa, baking cupcakes in New York City. Melissa, are you out there?
3: I am here. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: We, uh, Jesse and I, are just really thankful that you came on. Melissa, to dive in here, what makes your cupcake stand out to everybody else out there?
3: Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, they're just a bite and they're made with so much love. I can't even tell you. Everything's made entirely by hand. We have a variety of flavors that's always changing. And if I must say so myself, they're the most delicious cupcakes you'll ever have. And you can try every flavor without feeling bad about it. And I hate to use this word, but they're so moist and
0: Mm. delicious. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Moist is exactly I don't know we actually we're right now uh in studio we have a box of the cupcakes sitting here, and everybody is just chowing them down and everybody does agree actually right before you came on they they said and I don't know why they hid it from you they said these are the best cupcakes they ever had Melissa, let's backtrack for a second. How in the world do you even get into the cupcake industry?
3: well i um I really love cake and dessert um I'm just a sacral at heart and It's my passion, food, but more importantly, dessert. I was working in advertising as an assistant media planner in 2008, and I was fired from my job because I wasn't passionate about the work I was doing. I come from a very entrepreneurial family. My brother is an entrepreneur. We always wanted to start a business together. So the day I was fired, he said, go home, bake your cupcakes, we'll start a business together. At the time, I was baking tai cupcakes for everyone and anyone. If it was your birthday and I loved you, I bake you tai Thai cupcakes. Um, I, I love to work my butt off. Uh, physical labor is my jam, and I just wanted to find something to do every day that made me tired. And baking became that. So literally <laughs> a week after being fired, I was doing my first event as Melissa of Bake by Melissa at this, like, really trendy event in Soho in Manhattan. Um, it's, it's really unbelievable.
0: Looking back on the path that you're sitting here today, I mean, when this all started, uh, what year was it, 2008? Baked by Melissa <laughs> started in 2000, 2008. Uh, since then, you've been seen on People, The Kitchen, CNBC, Make It, uh, NBC New York, Forbes, and Pop Sugar. All from cupcakes. I, I'm going to be honest, Melissa. I'm I'm shocked. I was asked uh, two months ago to invest into, and I don't know if they're the same. And tell me if they're not. A donut company. I was trying to fran- franchise a donut that they they have, and I didn't invest into it. Mostly because I'm concerned with the dessert market. Are people consuming desserts like they used to?
3: So, A, I think you made the right decision. Donuts are much more challenging. Fried dough, um, you have to eat it right away. Like, when it's hot, that's the best way to experience a donut, in my humble opinion. I think Baked by Melissa, one of the things that makes us different from anyone else is that we're just a bite. So everything is less than 50 calories, which is pretty freaking special. And I'm an everything in moderation type person. So I actually, believe it or not, I eat very healthy. Plants and vegetables are my favorite types of food. But I always need a bite of something sweet. So Baked by Melissa allows you to have that. We definitely live in a more health-conscious society today than ever before. People want to know where their food is coming from everybody's like watching every bite. And that's why they Five Melissa is so freaking awesome because we're just a bite. And you can't live without dessert. I don't care who you are. Those people, <laughs> it's true. I, know, like, I know, like, you know, people try no sugar, whatever, fine. It's but true. it never lasts. You can't live a life without dessert. If you do, I'm sorry, you know? We all need something to eat.
2: It's so true. I try to be healthy, but you can only do it for so long. And, um, you know, recently I was at JFK. And you guys Mm -hmm. have a shop there. So I would be curious how that has changed your business, like being at such an international airport versus like the typical, you know, cupcake shops that you have around town. I'd be curious what the difference is.
3: Well, so at Baked, we ship our product nationwide. If you go to bakedbymelissa.com, you can purchase cupcakes and receive it the next day anywhere in the country. Joette is very much like that model. Um, people who are traveling all over the world are stopping at our store, purchasing cupcakes, and bringing them. We know that. Many of our customers at that location are actually purchasing birthday boxes and celebration kits. We have this like birthday in a box type thing, and the highest purchase rate is out of that location. Um, it's like being at the Olympics. People are coming from all over the world and they're trying our products, and that is very, very good for brand awareness. And, you know, we know that our product sells itself, so it's our best marketing tool.
0: Jesse, for a second, if, you know, a Baked by Melissa, or if Melissa came in to uh, do a presentation to you looking for funds, what would make a company like this, you know, kind of differentiate themselves compared to every other cupcake company? What are you looking for when you invest in kind of the dessert industry?
2: So, Melissa, I know we've just met, but I am a venture capitalist, so I invest in companies like I've yours. heard. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so, you know, I think what I would be curious about is – Um, you know, typically when I invest in a company, um, that is retail oriented, I'm slightly more terrified because you have to have these physical locations and we know how expensive real estate is these days. So how do you, how does that work for you? And how do you make sure that, um, you know, you're not, uh, going under because of the rent you're paying
3: sure so i could actually tell you what you're looking for as a venture capitalist first off we are in the retail business we have 14 brick and mortar locations in the new york area and year over year we're still growing which in this market is freaking insane because retail sucks right now for everyone else, we also have an extremely quickly growing e-commerce business that's up 30% year-over-year, year, which is, like, unheard of. Um, and I think for perishable goods, that's even more unique, because to be able to ship food and have it arrive in perfect condition, fresher than even if you purchase it in the store, is, is remarkable. And those, all of those things together make us extremely appealing to to anyone
2: (laughs) yeah and i'm curious also about shipping you know i'm an investor in sugarfina and um they had this issue a while back that in the summertime uh shipping is much more expensive because if you order something chocolate Mm. online um you have to ship it with an ice pack and it made shipping sometimes more expensive than what you were ordering um how do you deal with that and keep them fresh, especially if you're shipping across the country? Do you have warehouses across the country? Like, where are your prime locations? And- sure.
3: So we have one bakery, and we do all of our baking there, and we also ship out of that location. Um, we actually pay very close attention to our shipping configuration, and we change it for the season because of what you said. And we do a ton of testing. So we actually... Test the temperature of the product when it arrives in California and hot climates, both in the summer and the winter, to make sure we're using correct packaging. Our packaging is different in the summer than the winter, um, and we know that the weight of the package affects the cost, and we're just very conscious of that.
2: We, I have just been alerted that the ones that I've been sitting here chowing down, um, I love the peanut butter and jelly one, by the way, um, but these That's were shipped playlist. and they're delicious and they taste like you baked them today.
0: I, I do want to dig into that question a little bit, though, because at Generous, so Melissa, I own a coffee company and we ship our coffee all across the country. Shipping is our biggest issue. It has been. We, we pay you know anywhere from $5 to $9 for a 12-ounce bag of coffee. Uh, and so the company eats a lot of those shipping costs. We we offer a couple discounts. How do you work around that? Is it just building out your distribution channels? Uh, is it just worrying about the weight of the box? And then what does the future look like for you in that?
3: Um, shipping is expensive, hundred percent. And and we you know we don't make money off of our shipping costs for sure. We're doing everything we can to lower the cost for our customer. We live in an age where people don't want to pay for shipping. I think it's a testament to our product that our customers do pay for shipping. Um, and again, it's just paying close attention to it. In every meeting that we have to go over budget and everything, we're looking at the shipping costs, what we can do to, to lower them. And really, as part of why we want to grow our business, so we can lower our shipping costs. But, you know, there are always going to be challenges. And, and that is one, I think, for everyone in our industry.
2: And, you know, um, the Cupcake world is obviously incredibly competitive right now. Um, what would you say are like the three things that make you stand out?
3: It's so funny. You know, I get asked all the time who our competition is, and I say it's a little like whatever. I'm I'm a very humble person, but we don't have competition. We sell bite-sized cupcakes. I see the cupcake as my vessel for flavor. I've made literally like, okay, I have a rainbow cookie flavor that's like an Italian rainbow cookie. It's not a cupcake. I have a sugar cookie dough cupcake that's made with sugar cookie dough. I have cookie dough. I have a donut flavor that when you eat it, you think you're eating a donut, but it's in the shape of a cupcake. So I think that makes us different. Of course, that we're just a bite. We've figured out how to get our product in the hands of people all over the country in a way that not only keeps them looking perfect, but tasting just as fresh as they actually are. And that is truly unique. We don't have paper around our product, so we can't bake it. You know, like if you go into a bakery in any hometown, you're going to get a cupcake where you peel off the paper. The top is stale already because it was baked three days ago. Well, we can't do that. We don't have paper on our cupcakes. Therefore, we can only give you the freshest product. And and on Melissa, the company is called Baked by Melissa. When I walk onto the floor of the bakery, all of my teammates to stuff ice and top those cupcakes, get a little nervous, and they, they chuckle because they know I'm going to give them all feedback because the quality of our product is why people come back. And it's just, it's what makes us different, I think.
2: I want to um, go back to your story a little bit. Um, you know, what was the moment that you realized this was a business and you weren't just baking cupcakes for your friends? Like, what was the moment that it really took off and you were like oh my god my life's about to change
3: oh there were a few of those moments i guess so we i baked out of my apartment in murray hill manhattan for seven months and then i moved into this commercial kitchen in soho on spring street which was actually the basement of a cafe called cafe barry It's, it's no longer there now it's nike town they demolished the building but we signed our first, like, we opened our very first retail location on Spring Street and Broadway where I was doing the baking attached to the cafe with a little pickup window. And people lined up around the corner. My parents were driving to the city from New Jersey where I grew up every weekend. My mom would assemble pastry boxes and my dad would run cupcakes and down the stairs and together as a family, we were blown away. My dad and I would stick our heads out the window while we were serving customers, and there would be people lined up around the corner for cupcakes. I'm like, the lives never went away, and that was a real moment for me, but also, I guess, you know, as a founder, it's super important to do whatever necessary to get the job done, so my role has evolved as we've grown the company, and and, you know, changing what I focus on every single day in order to continue to grow the company is another, you know, way to say, like, it's not about what I love. It's about continuing to grow this business and do something amazing with like minded and hardworking, passionate people. I have the most unbelievable team of people here at this time. Melissa, we love what we do. And at this point, that's the best part of my job. It's like, yes, we have this unbelievable product. but. It is a job. It's a responsibility to our customers and to my team to continue to work our butts off and give everyone the ultimate experience and dessert.
0: Melissa, you got great cupcakes. We're chowing down in the studio now. They're absolutely delicious. Uh, Before you go, you also released a cookbook, Cakes by Melissa. And then how can all of our listeners – Find your cupcakes if they're interested in these 50-calorie, bite-sized cupcakes all across the country.
3: Go to com. You'll see all of our delicious bite-sized cupcakes. We have gluten-free. We have double-stuffed macarons. We have like three tie-dye flavors right now. They make the perfect gift. Valentine's Day is coming up. If you have someone you love who likes to eat, you cannot go wrong. Kylie Jenner is a huge fan of baked by Melissa. We've never paid her a dollar. Go see what she's been
2: talking about. Okay. I have one more question about these cupcakes. Um, Which one would you consider like the lady boss cupcake?
3: I would say my guy is the most popular flavor, our signature flavor, and the flavor that started it all.
0: Okay.
2: Go get that one.
0: (laughs) Melissa, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, guys. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. If you're a mom, or a dad, and you haven't set up a will yet, it's time. And you've probably been putting it off because you think it's going to be expensive, time-consuming, and overwhelming. Your solution is trustandwill.com. You can make a complete and legal will in minutes for just $69. Half of all adults have put off setting up their will or trust. Well, Trust and Will enables parents, homeowners, and loved ones to have peace of mind without the confusion, time commitment, and cost of setting up an estate plan with an attorney. Since 2017, Trust & Will has helped more than 10,000 members successfully protect their legacy. To learn more, visit TrustAndWill.com or follow at Trust & Will on social media. Make a complete and legal will for just $69. And right now, use code LADYBOSSES to get $10 off. TrustAndWill.com Leaving uh, Baked by Melissa, I'm really concerned about the dessert space. You've, Jesse, you said it to Melissa that you think that people can't live without desserts. I, and, d- and
2: I, I definitely and, don't think they can.
0: So you would invest into something like a cupcake that's bite-sized because what it does do, it does, she said the word that really interested me is moderation. So she's taken this, this dessert or this thing that we all love and she's kind of slimmed it down so that we can still have the taste and the flavor. But four of those cupcakes probably doesn't equal one massive cupcake that you would get in a normal bakery.
2: Yeah, which is why her margins will be higher probably because she's selling more cupcakes. Um, I think that's, I, I mean, I would personally, I love cupcakes. I love the dessert industry. I'm terrified of investing in food. The only two food, food businesses that I've invested in are Sugarfina, which is candy. So it is dessert. So clearly I believe in dessert, but it's less perishable. And then mm. the other one is tea also less perishable because I think about the shelf life and like what happens if, you know, one cupcake gets like salmonella somehow. I don't know. I think about like, then you have to throw out this whole bunch where we invest in consumer businesses with products, but like, I don't want to have to throw away any of the products, you know?
0: Well, I'm with you. I agree. The cool part though, and, and we're not... We're not joking with anybody. These cupcakes are great. I mean, they're really good. good. And you're in California, like shipped from New York to California across the country, and they stay good. The story with Melissa is interesting to me because she gets fired from a job. We didn't hit on this as much as maybe we should have. She gets fired from a job and then just goes, What's my passion? Like, what do I like to do? And her brother goes, Start baking. And she starts baking. And now, you know, what is it? 11 years later, 14 locations and continuing to grow. 30% 30% online year over year over year, all with baking. Like just a normal person that loves baking.
2: And if I was going to guess how big the business is, I would have asked her, but typically they won't, you know, share their numbers probably on this. Um, I think that she's probably, it's probably like at least a $25, 50000000 million company. So like that's, they're killing it. I mean, if they have 14 shops, they bring in a couple million dollars per year, probably in each shop, I'd hope with cupcakes, I think, I mean, they're probably, yeah, I think they're probably doing somewhere between 25 and $50 million.
0: As we talked about at the beginning of the episode, Jesse, you know, there's this new trend uh, that cities and municipalities are entering into to build these marketplaces. And these marketplaces are, you know, kind of share the burden of overhead when it comes to uh, real estate. A bake by Melissa seems like the perfect fit into that kind of concept.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, that was like the one I saw actually in JFK, which imagine what great branding that is because it's like this little shop, but you have an international audience. There's always people walking by and it's just this sort of automatic international branding. Uh, but yeah, the marketplace is, you know, traditional retail is shutting down. You look at Macy's is shutting down a whole bunch of stores. Like it's just real estate is way too expensive. So even traditional retailers that we're all familiar with are changing their entire uh, business.
0: You know, Jesse, I want to hear from you then on this. Growing up as a child, our next guest is a child expert, uh, we should say, and then we'll bring her on a second. Growing up as a kid, some of my best memories really are with my mom. Going to the mall, walking around in the stores, exploring all the different options and eating at the food court and then leaving and going home. It was it was what we would do when she needed to shop. It, does it do you have any any emotional sentiment, especially as a, a lady boss yourself and knowing that the retail world is disappearing? I mean, these malls no longer will exist. You have massive malls with the J.C. and the Macy's that were the staple shops and stores of these malls. No longer there. They're empty. Let's talk first about the emotional side of that, because for me, that hurts a little bit. I enjoyed those experiences. And then let's talk about the business side and where that's going.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. It's devastating. I mean, to think that all these malls, you know, you walk through everything from, um, what is it, the big art center in Los Angeles, and they have all these empty windows all the way to, uh, you know, Third Street promenade, Promenade, and like you're starting to see more empty windows. But also, um, what's happening is basically, it's sort of like brands are being democratized. So everyone's coming out with this new brand of toothpaste, deodorant, uh, razors, you know, you look at Dollar Shave Club. And so they don't need these stores anymore. But what's happening is some of them are getting little shops for branding. So now when you walk around Soho in New York, instead of seeing these independent stores, you're seeing like um, oh my gosh! What are they called? Uh, Allbirds, the the um, tennis shoes, and those are a direct to consumer brand, so they don't actually need stores. But then you're also seeing Nordstrom, uh, you know, invest in companies like Sugarfina, and then they put Sugarfina as a pop up shop in all of their Nordstroms. We actually have a company called Bulletin, and their whole thing is they they create they find retail space that's really like prime locations. And they bring in a whole bunch of independent brands with social media followings to sell their one or five products there. And the social media drives foot traffic into these stores. They're all over New York City now. Um, And so I think you see the model changing significantly. I think it will all work out. Like I'm seeing WeWorks now go into these malls because It helps the foot traffic in malls. So you work out of a mall and then you have to walk through all the shops. You know, there's one on Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica. There's one uh, in that big mall in San Francisco. I'm seeing that happen more. So I think people are solving this problem. It's just changing up a little. And what you should think about is where will people always go? Like what shops won't shut down? And when I think about that, I think of pharmacies. And, uh, food people, you know, there's so much going on around food and, you know, maybe you should start to sell products in, you know, kind of like stop in restaurants or coffee shops. Like there's this whole new culture around fancy coffee. Even Starbucks like has opened fancier coffee, you know?
0: I know all about that.
2: I love coffee.
0: Oh, so do I. Oh, sorry. I brought up
2: Starbucks. Is that like, is that like the antichrist?
0: No, okay. no, we're taking Starbucks down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, you know you're right, and I think that's a really interesting thing that I've never thought of is the the WeWorks and those shared workspaces kind of going into those larger uh, retail spaces so that people can kind of have the shopping experience, the eating experience, and the work experience all in one. That to me is really interesting. Uh, again, before we bring on our next guest, uh, who is the CEO of Bougainhead, Jesse. Do you think the change up, because, you know, I am the president of a small business, uh, a startup that, that I found with two of my friends. I know that our capital uh, it was short uh, when we tried to open up our first coffee shop. A revenue share idea was the best way we could do it because we didn't maybe have the cash on hand. Is this new kind of trend in retail space better for the small business or is it worse because larger companies, honestly, like Baked by Melissa have the ability to kind of scale a lot faster than maybe a generous would.
2: I don't know if it's better or worse yet. I'd be curious how your revenue share works. So maybe you should dig into that. But also, I think we're going to just see a lot more brands pop up. And that's a really positive thing. It means more people are running these small businesses and we'll see which ones win. But I don't think we'll have these like Unilever Type conglomerates anymore down the road, um, or uh, maybe we will. I mean, I'm just sort of thinking. Unilever bought up Dollar Shave Club. They're buying up all these independent brands. But I think as more and more independent brands pop up in different verticals, what does that look like? Um, because they they won't buy them all. I think it'll. It, I think it really democratizes uh, consumer businesses.
0: You know, Jesse, I, I can't disagree with you, but I want to say for the, anybody out there listening that might be a little confused right now, um, including myself. What do you mean by a vertical or democratizing business?
2: So a vertical would be, um, you know, you look at Dollar Shave Club would be in the sort of self-care vertical of, um, you know, with razors and shaving cream. And that would be one vertical. Um, and then there might be within that vertical, a hair vertical, you know, within the self-care vertical vertical. There's shampoos and all of that. So when I say vertical, that's that's what I mean. And then democratizing business just m- means to me that we're seeing a lot more individual brands like what Dollar Shave Club started out as. And now we're seeing Allbirds, the direct-to-consumer shoe company, Rothy's, direct-to-consumer shoe company, Teeks, direct-to-consumer shoe company. And we're seeing more and more of these and it's democratizing these individual brands versus, you know, Nordstrom getting all of the foot traffic. What's happening is everyone's going onto these many, many shoe websites uh, individually, and they're getting all of the traffic.
0: You know, just uh, to clear up anything, if if Jesse and I ever kind of use the uh, the verbiage like B to C or B to B, that means you know, direct to business to consumer or business to business. Um, So it kind of hopefully clears that up. And when you look at, you know, how you're distributing and who you're selling to, our lady boss of the week is Sari Davidson, the owner, founder, and CEO of Boogan Sari, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you
2: so much for having me. Hey, Sari, I'm so excited about uh, to hear about everything you're doing. I actually use your Boogan pacifier thing.
1: Oh my God. That's amazing. I love like the best news ever.
0: They're awesome. You know, we've heard, uh, before we dive in, you've obviously entered into an industry and a sector that is, uh, always going to be around as long as babies are. But Sari, uh, that's Jesse's world to operate in. It's talking about your business. My world to operate in is, is hearing about you and how this all got started. Can you give us a little background?
1: Sure. So in the, 2005, I was a young mom. My son, who is now 14, um, was almost a year old and was trying to learn how to use a sippy cup, and it kept falling to the floor. And then he realized it was this fun game where he could just keep keep throwing it and I would pick it up. And I thought, you know, there's gotta be something out there that solves this problem. And I went on the internet, I went to all the major retailers and there wasn't. And so I literally went to Target and bought an eighty dollar sewing machine and sat down at my kitchen table and started sewing. And um and it was through lots of iterations and passing it out to sort of mom group friends and things like that that the Sippy Grip, which was my very first product, was born. And essentially it's very it's a very simple product that's still um, it's actually in Target today, and it is uh, essentially a leash for a cup, or a bottle, or a toy. And when I first came up with the idea, I, I, you know, I sort of played with it a little bit online, but didn't really do that much with it. I was in California at the time, and I was recruited by Microsoft to go and work in their entertainment group. And so I moved my family to Seattle and sort of put it on hold, and then about a year later, the itch of the entrepreneurial itch just started going again. And I decided in 2007 that I was really going to go for it and launch a company around this product. And so that's the really very high level, simple version of how Bougainhead got started.
0: What did you think this, I mean, for you, Sari, this, you weren't, uh, this is your very first venture. It's the very first time starting company. You had an idea and you saw an issue and you pursued it. Mm-hmm. What was your thoughts when Boogan started?
1: So to back up a little bit, um, I actually had a recruiting company prior to that. My entire career prior to doing this is in recruiting and human resources. And I grew up in a household where my mom had her own business that she started when I was 14, and she worked seven days a week, I mean, up at 5 a.m. on Saturdays. And my dad, successful in his own right, you know, it was really my mom that, Put me through college, in a sense, and so I grew up with my parents always saying to me a couple of things. One, never rely on a man to support you, and you will always make more money working for yourself than you will for someone else. And and all, everybody in my family, including my father and my brother, they we are we have all gone down the entrepreneurial path at one point or another. So it wasn't a foreign. Op- Uh, No concept for me. And so when I first came up with the idea, it honestly never even occurred to me that it wasn't something that I was going to try and do by myself. I had no I had no background in consumer products or in marketing or anything like that. And in some ways, ignorance truly was bliss. Because if I had known then what I know now about all the struggles I've been through and the stress and all of the the negative pieces of it, I'm not sure I would have had the stomach to sort of go for it. But it was sort of this blindly I'm just gonna dive in and, and see what happens. And I had a big safety net because I was working at Microsoft for the first three years that I was building Boogiehead. I would do Microsoft during the day and I would do Booganhead at night. And when my company got to a Million in sales is when I left Microsoft and went off on my own to concentrate on Booganhead full time.
0: What are some of those struggles and pains and just dirtiness that happens <laughs> when you start your own company?
1: So. Um- I I own the company 100%. I have never had any investors. Oh Um, my gosh. Yeah. And (laughs) I read that
2: you're a million dollar, or you're well past a million dollar business probably now. Yeah. We're, yep, we're, that's the dream right
1: now. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, part of the struggle is, and I I mean, honestly, at the time, I wouldn't even have known how to go out and raise capital. I mean, that was a completely foreign concept to me. Um, But, when you, and I, I've, by the way, I love this podcast. I've listened to all your episodes. I was literally at my warehouse all day yesterday, re-stickering bids that are going into Walmart. And all I did was listen to the podcast. And then just a little anecdote, part of this, not to get too off track, but Ben, I'm a massive, bachelor nation fan i mean obsessed. <laughs> and and my son jake is like the fitting image of you what i think you look like when you were his age and so jake and i there are two shows we watch together we watch bachelor natural and nation shows and we watch the shark tank and we pause and we discuss throughout all of it so it this is like for me oh. i feel like i'm so excited to be on this podcast but that's really um, nice I, I digress i digress <laughs> tell me the question again i'll get back on track.
0: <laughs> that's amazing
2: um well actually i'd love to dig in with um what you so you bootstrapped this entire yes, company you so were talking bootstra- about that
1: yeah, so basically what I did, and the reason why I stayed my, at Microsoft so long, and I was the sole um, and only breadwinner in my family um, at the time, and so I basically lived off of my Microsoft salary, and anything that I made in the business, I put back in. I had no employees, so you have to understand, I was on maternity leave with my second son when I found out I got into Baby's RS, and I mean, I was like, I didn't even know where I was going to get money from to actually manufacture to put the product in the store. Um, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm a very, I'm very conservative with money as it is. And so I, I just found a way and every penny I made, I put back in and, you know, it, that's not, super scalable long-term if you're actually truly going to grow a business. But when you are selling items, and, you know, Ben with Generous Coffee, I think you'll sort of relate to this. When you're selling an item that is $5, you know, it takes, you know, we're now an over $4 million company. It takes a lot of widgets to get to $4 million. And when you are manufacturing a consumer product, overseas, you're talking about a good six to eight month lead time until you're going to get paid on the product that you're manufacturing. And so part of my strategy is that I did not manufacture something that was not already sold into a major retailer. So we, like, for example, in um, next month, we'll go to our Walmart line review, we'll go to our Target line review, and we'll show them all of these new products that we've created. If they don't, look at it and say, we're, we're going to take it next year. We do not go into production with it. So for me, I decided to grow very organically rather than taking really wild, big risks and putting a lot of money out there and hoping that if you build it, they will come. My strategy is it's already been sold. I just have to find the money to stop gap, get me from manufacturing to payment.
0: Now, I mean, Jesse, what do you think of that? You know, she did the
2: right things. Like I, I understand what you're saying, Sari, that, you know, you feel like in order to scale a real business, you need to raise capital and grow really fast. But you've still grown. And the dream is to own. I always use this like Instagram uh, analogy, but it's like, wouldn't you rather own 100% of Instagram than a small piece when they sold for a billion dollars? So I feel like that's what you've done. Yeah. Yes, you can go
1: either way because there have been times I really, like I have a deck that I, um, I have that I'm consistently updating. That's my pitch deck. And there have been times that I really have thought, okay, it's getting down to the wire. I've, I need to go raise some capital. You know, we work with a bank and we have a line of credit, and that really helps with all the manufacturing costs. But when you get picked up by Walmart and you're told you're going to be in every single store, I mean, your, your head flies off because you're like, I don't even know. And then on the other piece of that, in terms of, you know, Ben, you would ask about struggles when you own a company hundred um, percent. You know, and I know that the gal from the um, blow dry bar had sort of talked about her first store. They had a personally guarantee. I'm still personally guaranteeing everything. That's the way it works with me and the bank, because, you know, we have a massive amount of inventory that we have to carry. And there's a lot of provisions on that. And so when you are, single, I'm single mom with two kids and, you know, the food is not going to get on the table unless I make it. Every penny that I spend, every mistake that I made, and I've made a lot of financial mistakes, um, all of those things, that stress that I'd say is sort of, I now have seven employees. They rely on me for their livelihood. So sort of having that responsibility in terms of waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat but there are some massive highs i'm so proud of what i've done and we uh, about a year and a half ago i bought a building that is in downtown of where we live it's just a great little area we totally redid it it has got our branding and all oh my the feel shiplaps everywhere you know it's a place i want to be every day and to have that and to have my boys see me they're now getting to an age where they understand what mom does and jake comes to the warehouse with me and he gets ten dollars an hour to pack boxes i mean that that piece is just you can't replace that that's amazing
2: you sound like an incredible mom and an amazing entrepreneur um, you know, so as an investor, if I were to invest, but it sounds like you don't need that. <laughs> um, well, you know
1: what? I, I've, i listen, I've done my research on you guys smart. too. I am more than happy to have a conversation because you said, <laughs> she's this, smart. This, is, you said this about entrepreneurs. That's a good entrepreneur. In some ways, Always well, but in raising. some ways, I disagree is because I would, I often thought I would rather have, you know, let's just say 50% of a. million company than 100% of a $4 million company. So there are, there are, there are so many times I've thought, God, what more could I, there's so much more I can do if I had, you know, all this money to work with. So I I really think that there's not a right path. I have many, many entrepreneur friends that have built their businesses by raising capital. And, um, you know, I think everybody sort of looks at the other side and says the grass is greener.
2: Yeah.
0: Now, Jesse, for you, if you look at Boogan right now is as an investor, let's simplify investing to investing one-on-one obviously with I love the you background for of, doing
1: this, make it happen, make it happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: let's do a deal.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's the next section of this lady bosses podcast. <laughs> right. All of a sudden we're going to stop in between and say, Jesse, are you in or are you out? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, no, I mean, let's simplify it to, to just completely break it down because of the work and effort that area has put into the beginning of this to prove sales, to, 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 to build a proven distribution channel. You're obviously looking at this and saying it's a proven brand at this point, right? And so your investment is going to be a lot higher than if this was an idea at even a half million dollars in sales in year one.
2: Totally, but I also get less ownership um, Mm -hmm. because so we do early stage investing, so I like to get Mm -hmm. in really, really early. But um, you know, it's there is something to be said about getting into a company with traction, it's you've proved it out, and so um, you know, we might write a bigger check or something to maintain the ownership we want. Um, But what I would ask about as far as an investment here um and ben you know that's a really good question actually because we we do look for some kind of traction so i love to see a million in revenue i love to see like a hundred thousand you know email list Uh uh just some kind of traction that you can prove to me there is a need um so the one thing i would be concerned in a business like this is um defensibility and what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is just you know you are making these very incredible unique products that I 100% use for my children as I've told you um, to hold on to pacifiers to Mm -hmm. hold on to um, sippy cups how do you defend that though can anyone do it Um, right we call that a barrier to entry like can you Uh, you know, it feels like a low barrier to entry. Do you have patents? Do you have IP? Mm -hmm. Um, What, you know, what do you have that will defend this?
1: Right. Well, I'd love to turn this into a something that I often give advice for, for entrepreneurs. And one of the things I'm actually really passionate about is about sort of paying it forward to um, women entrepreneurs getting started. There were many people when I started and still now that give, uh, to me in that way from a mentorship standpoint, um, and so um, to answer your question, yes, we have items that have patents. We have items that don't. Um, you know, uh, the, the bottom line is in my, what I have learned in my business is that um, first to market and peg on the shelf is gold. Um, and so we were really the only sort of gig um, in town when it came. We were the first to market with a universal pacifier holder. That product is what built my business. We sell well over a $1 and a half a year units of that item in massive retail chains. And when we go to our buyers at a Target or a Walmart or what have you, I ask that question, why are you still choosing me and my product over the lots of the other knockoffs and competitors, some of which are major, major brands that we sit on the shelf next to? And their answer to me is very consistent because you always come to me with something fresh and new. And that's, rather than just showing me the same old thing. And the motto I have within my company, which I borrowed from an executive at Microsoft in their hardware department is you innovate or you die. And so for us, whether it is like, for example, this year, we are coming out with a completely refreshed line of all the passy grips, sippy grips, all of that sort of thing. And every year we come out with new products that, go within the same line, but that stretch us in terms of our shelf space. And so we actually, one of our products at Target got picked up, and there were a million other competitors, Sippy Grip, um, because it looked good on the shelf next to the other products because our our packaging, our branding. And so um, getting if you are if you for example if you're in the baby business and you like oh I want to do a passport holder and it's 2018 and you're just starting out honestly your ability to get into a major retailer is pretty slim but if you already have traction with that retailer and you have a, a A relationship with those buyers, if you go to them with something that is now a competitor to something they already have on the shelf, if you've got um, a fresher look at it, a better price and a great relationship, then you absolutely have a chance. And so um, that's what we do every year. Now, from here on out, when I design something or when we design something, I should say, I have got to have intellectual property attached to it. I mean, that is just like base level. I design, even if it's just a design patent, I need that. Um, but, um, but, you know, my passive grip will still outsell. Any other competitors on the shelf, and and um, and because we are constantly innovating. being fresh. yes yeah, we're innovating. We're innovating.
2: That's fantastic. That's really good advice too for anyone out there who has an idea and is creating something. Um, I mean i I just think this is great. Tell us about some of your. What's your newest product?
1: Um, well, I can't tell you about what's oh, in development, see, but
2: what I can tell great. you,
1: yes. But what I can tell you is because we uh, have been so, so successful with our PASI grip and it's basically it has a loop on the end, which is why it makes it universal. We, you know, a couple of years ago when we were getting knocked off a lot and what have you, I basically said, you know what, you guys, we're going to be the PASI grip company. We, this is a niche. We do it well. We're really successful at it. Rather than trying to go off the reservation and do like a diaper pail or, you know, something like that, let's own it. Let's be the past secret people. And so now we have, um, we have plush items that the kids hold that have, you know, the loop at the end to put their pacifier around. We have blankets um, with teethers and the loop. We have bibs. Um, so, we, you know, we've really sort of – what I'm trying to do is we're trying to take vertical categories like, for example a- – a teether and incorporate that into something that's already an existing cell for us and create a new product around that so it can sit in sort of multiple categories. And that's how I'm sort of trying to stretch the boundaries of the shelf space. Um, I learned a long time ago that if you just create products that don't sit together on the shelf, the buyer can't do anything with it. But if you can create a, a, a brand that can, all, that can sit together, but you just keep sort of exa- expanding the boundaries of that brand, then that is something um, that has really worked for us. So if you go to our site, boogandhead.com, you you know, you can see everything we're doing. And a lot of our new products are currently, um, at the very final stages of product development will probably come out, um, in second, early third quarter of, um, of this year. So we're really excited about it.
0: And so Sarah, before we let you go here, if anybody's out there listening going, I have to have these products, you're saying you're in Walmart, uh, you're online at boogandhead.com. Where else can people find you?
1: We're in every Walmart store. We're in every Target store. We're in every Rite Aid store. We'll be launching an ATB which is a massive chain in the Texas area. Um, We are at all Bye Bye Baby stores. We are... Pretty much our entire catalog is online on Amazon. Um, something that your viewers should know is that we are doing a discount code on our site. Um, the discount code is LadyBoss. You can go on there. Our entire catalog is on there and um, love to give a discount to those folks. But we're pretty much, you know, in every area of uh, the country and, and internationally, so um, they can find us.
0: Sari and Jesse, I know you've got kids that you've got to get back to. uh, So we're going to call this another episode of Lady Bosses.
2: So I'm your resident Lady Boss, Jesse Draper.
0: And I'm just Ben.
2: Follow Lady Bosses and Ben on iHeartRadio
1: or wherever you listen to podcasts. iHeartRadio.
0: At these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80.